Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen Watt, and in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is Roland Frazier, a serial entrepreneur, business mentor, expert investor, and CEO of All Channels Media, LLC. He's also the principal at other high-profile companies, including Scalable.co, DigitalMarketer.com, Traffic and Conversion Summit, Praxio.com, and many others. Today, I'm super excited to share with you what he has to say about success, mindset, business, and all around being a better person. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Like we we're just saying uh, pre-show, it's funny because it's, and I get this a lot with guests, it goes full circle. I've either followed them for a long time or seen their stuff for a long time and, and, and now have them on the show. And I feel like I've seen your ads everywhere. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I mean, I, a uh, serial entrepreneur, started uh, young and uh, have been doing it for quite a while now. Uh, started out primarily in real estate and then moved into insurance and securities and raising money. And then into, uh, as I went through school, uh, uh, had a, got a, ended up uh, with a degree in accounting, which is very helpful, though I never actually practiced accounting, practiced law for about 12 years. And then uh, just kind of all along the way, I've enjoyed acquiring real estate and companies and uh, I'm, I'm, everything is for sale pretty much always. And uh, that's, uh, that's the short end, you know, I've, uh, quite a few different companies, 38 different uh, holding companies across 38 verticals right now. And uh, under each of those, you know, I'm, I'm always looking to buy and always looking to sell. So do you have, obviously, I would assume one can't personally run so many companies. Uh, I do it all. I'm the CEO of all the companies. I I, I operate, I run all the marketing, um, you know, basically it, it, I don't sleep. No. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, we have, uh, we have people that run all of those. I, I, my whole credo is stay off the org chart. So if you're on the organization chart, you have a job title. If you have a job title, you have a job description and a job. I'm not really somebody that wants a job. Yeah, I don't want to be employed. Um, no. Speaking to that, let's back up a bit. So you said you've been in the entrepreneurial game a while and you started young. What was your first entrepreneurial exploits, shall I say? I mean, my well, my first entrepreneurial exploits were... Uh, were doing magic shows for uh, you know for money, and then uh, that was very very young, and then went into playing music, and so I started playing out in clubs when I was 15 years old, and um, played keyboards, and then uh, occasionally bass when the songs weren't too hard, and I could run around with a wireless bass, and I did that for quite a while. I played until I was about 42. And, um, it just, you know, just was still fun, but not, uh, not practical because I travel quite a bit now. So it's, uh, you know, being out at three in the morning, packing up your gear is also, you know, eh. 
Did you get into it because you thought this would be a great opportunity to make money or did you get into it because you like doing it and you just got paid so it was nice? Like how did you find that that entrepreneurial edge, so to speak, for yourself to now end up at 38 companies, you know? Yeah, it's just, uh, I, I like doing it. So, um, you know, all, all the way even back then. So I started playing music and I realized I'd play in a band and there was somebody that managed the band. They always needed PA, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to save my money and buy a PA. And then uh, I bought a PA and started renting it out to, to my band and then other bands. And then I started running sound for bands. And then I was like, well, a lot of them need lights. And so I bought lights and then I started renting the lights and the PA and running the lights and the sound. And I was like, well, I need a truck to move that stuff around instead of paying somebody else. So I bought a truck to move all the stuff around. And so, you know, it's just, it leads to me, everything is incremental and I'm always looking for what is the next opportunity level. And then that just, you know, as I went through school, my father uh, still to this day practices tax law. And, um, you know, he, he told me when I was younger, he said, you know, listen, if you, you, uh, don't know what you want to do, which I still, am not sure. Um, you, sh- you could always go to college and get a degree in accounting because then you'll know numbers. And if you know numbers, then that will be helpful to you in the world. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I don't know what I want to do. I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, if you get a late, a law degree, then you'll, you know, know how the laws work. And those are things that he was right about. And I used each of those things almost every day because they're such helpful skills out in the world of business. And they let me bump across a lot of deals. And so I've always been interested in, in business. And I've always been interested, like people would come into his office when I was a kid and they'd be dressed in casual clothes and all the attorneys had on the coats and ties. And these people are like, you know, they, they have gold mines and um, algorithms that do things and uh, horses and all of these different ways that people made money. And it was just fascinating. I was like, I, I like that. These people aren't tethered to an office. There's no fluorescent lighting around them. They're coming here casual and relaxed. And, you know, it seems like a pretty cool way to be. I'd like to do that. And then I just kind of started reading and, you know, investigating that Bob Allen, Robert Allen's book, Nothing Down, uh, my dad shared with me and I was like, man, you can buy real estate with nothing down. That's so cool. And, um, you know, that just kind of led to everything else, but I definitely was, you know, from long, long ago, I, I just, I didn't like the idea of working for somebody. The last job I had working for somebody was as a skate rental clerk at golden skate world roller rink in Richmond, Virginia. So, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's been a long time. I was like, you know, 16, <laughs> Did you get into property before buying businesses or was it the other way around? Or yeah, something? no, property first. Yeah. And so you obviously got the idea of like, hey, I can buy property and then leverage it and I can do, you know, sort of runs itself. What made you transition into then trying to do the same thing with businesses? So in real estate, I uh, I started out selling houses and then I was like, well, what what's the center of influence so I don't have to knock on doors and convince people to list their houses with me? And I was like, well, people that are building houses have lots of houses for sale. So I made friends with some developers and ended up getting to represent them. And then I was like, well, this is development stuff is kind of cool. You seem like you're doing pretty well. How does that work? And they're like, well, we go out and we raise money from people through these things called syndications that are limited partnerships and people put up money and buy interests in that. And then we take that money and we buy land and get it entitled. And then we build houses or we just sell off the lots and then we pay them back and we get the difference. And I was like, well, that's cool. Uh, How do I help with that. And the first thing was, well, there's this stuff thing called key man insurance, now key person insurance, where 
we have to, in case something happens to us, we have to get an insurance policy. And I was like, that sounds like a commission. Can I go get my insurance license and sell you that? And they were like, yeah. I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, well, the selling securities, this, this like raising money thing, that sounds really interesting too. Can I just go start doing that? And they were like, well, you have to have a license. And at the time, the license was only, you couldn't take the series seven exam in Virginia. You had to go up to Washington DC to do it. So, you know, I'm at that point, 20 years old. So I bought a review book and I got found somebody that got referred to me that could hold my license. It was a firm in New York, a small firm. And um, I went up to DC and I took the took the exam and passed it. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I can raise money. And then through those connections in New York, I get introduced to some people at um, Prudential Securities. One of those investment bankers took me under their wing and was like, you know, this is, I mean, right down to this is how you need to dress. This is how you need to talk. This is, you know, this is how this game works. And I met an ops team that they had that they would send into companies they would buy using leveraged buyouts. I learned all about leveraged buyouts and how that stuff worked. And I was like, you mean you can buy a company and the company pays for itself? Holy crap, that's amazing. And so that was really far more interesting to me at that point than real estate, because once you get real estate down, you know, you kind of have it down. It's not terribly challenging. And so I liked all the moving parts of companies and I liked all the different things that companies could do. I really love that idea. I have a few investment properties and and they're just buy and holds and then we leverage and then we get more and they just sort of which stack. is great, right? It's um, not particularly fascinating, but it's great, you know. No. And it's and 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 looking at it, I'm thinking, what else can I do with stuff that can create more capital that can do things uh, more quickly? I'm always looking not not quickness as in like get rich quick, but I'm looking at speed of of growth. Am I in the in the most efficient? Uh, you know, routes and they call it the velocity of capital, right? So it's like, how fast can I turn my capital over again and again and again? And I can turn it over faster if I leverage it. I can turn it over faster if I can deploy it more often. You know, those are key KPIs to be thinking about when you're thinking about what's my speed. Hundred mm, percent. So if someone was looking at getting in and and having a business pay for itself. You talked about leverage buyouts, no money down, things like that. Can you break down some of that for us? Yeah. To me, it's it's important because I think no money down deals are really hard. No money down means that there's no cash that's going to exchange hands at the closing, but no money out of pocket means that there's very likely to be cash that exchanges hands. It's just not going to be coming out of your pocket. So I focus on that um, because you almost always need some amount of cash to make a seller happy to get a business that's a good business. No money down businesses are out there, but they're generally turnarounds or not doing well or you know, or unicorns because it's really hard to find them. But no money out of pocket businesses are pretty common because businesses have so many different assets and there's so many third party things that you can do. And so I'm at 221 strategies now for being able to create financing to acquire a company that's a lot. So I look at, I call it a deal stack and I'm just like, okay, so what I've got now is zero and the company costs whatever it costs. Let's say it costs a million dollars. So my gap is a million dollars. Now I look at these strategies, these 221 different things that have evolved over time to say, these are like Lego blocks. And all I have to do is stack them on top of each other until I can build a bridge between zero and the price of the business. And if I can do that, then I own the business and I didn't come out of pocket. So it kind of becomes a game of, uh, you know, investment Jenga where you put, you know, instead of taking them out, you're putting them on top of each other until they fall over. Um, I've heard of, of creative financing with uh, property, but creative financing with businesses is, uh, that's very interesting. I like that. What do you call it? Financial Jenga. 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like reverse financial Jenga because yeah, you, yeah. you you know, Jenga, that tower that you take things out and you try not to knock over the pieces. This one, we're trying to build a bridge up to, we're trying to build a tower up to bridge the gap between zero and the price of the business. And we keep adding pieces and, you know, well, that piece didn't get us all the way there. So now there's another one and there's another one. Now we don't want them to all fall over, but we do want to keep adding things until we can get up there. And so that's a fun game to play, I think. When you're looking at a business, you're obviously assessing for whether it's something that makes sense to invest into. You're not just figuring out how to buy all the businesses because there would be bad businesses to buy, et cetera, et cetera, I, I would assume mm-hmm. to some degree. So can you break down a little bit what you're looking at if you're considering buying a business? What makes it something that ticks the boxes? What are the boxes generally for you? Yeah, so so we call that acquisition criteria. And it's really important to know what that is because if you don't know what that is, you don't know what to say no to. And you can spend a lot of time looking at things that don't really get you to the place that you want to go. So when we're looking like my acquisition criteria generally is different from my acquisition criteria for my real estate business or you know my uh, e-learning business or, or, or one of the other ones. So the general is I'm looking for something that is going to hit the financial target that I want. So I know that I want to deal generally that is a platform company, not like an add-on company, but a company that's going to be kind of a centerpiece of a vertical. I want that company to be doing at least a million dollars in EBITDA or profit um, every year. Because if it's not doing that, then it doesn't have a lot of cash to work with to take care of some of the things I might do to acquire it. And it doesn't have a lot of money to grow and it's probably early on. So to me, it's never a startup. I don't like startups because they're just so much harder and 90% of them fail. You know, Whereas if I'm acquiring a business that's been around for 10 years, it has a 90% chance of success versus a 90% chance of failure. So um, I like the odds to be in my favor for a business that's been around for a while. 10 years is ideal. Profitable is important. At level of profitability is important to identify too. For me, it's a million dollars in EBITDA. And, um, and then I want it to be something that I'm not going to have to run. So it needs to have an operator or the departing operators have to be replaceable. And I've got to have some indication of where that replacement is going to come from. I'm looking for a good compound annual growth rate, preferably in 20% or higher per year. I'm looking for a good profit margin, preferably 20% or higher. You know, those are the kind I'm looking for long-term management. I'm looking for diversified customers so that all their eggs aren't in the basket of one customer. I don't like um, platform dependencies, like I'm selling on Amazon and I only sell on Amazon because then if Amazon decides something's wrong with you, your whole business is gone. Um, if you've got one SEO page that's sending 100% of your business, that's dangerous. You know, Google once in a blue moon does readjust their algorithm. So those are all things that, you know, that, that are important in evaluating. What would make a business owner running a business like that, that sounds like it's doing pretty well, consider to sell? What's the incentive for them other than what are the, the Ds, right? Death, divorce, et cetera. Yeah. There, there are a lot of things, right? So like I'm generally looking for someone who has some motivation. So I'm a seller, but I'm not the seller I would want to meet because I'm going to sell at market or better. Um, but what I'm looking for is people that have a desire to achieve some goal other than money that is greater of greater importance to them than the money that they could get if they were to go through a full market deal. So here's a few things. One is they wanted to sell the business before, but 80% of the businesses that get listed for sale never sell. So 
I got 80% of everybody who's ever listed a business for sale, who's a potential sale for me. And they're going to be more realistic once they've gone through the process and not gotten what they wanted. So that's a flexible, motivated seller. There are people who have partners they need to get rid of. I've had several great deals that have come about where I would acquire an interest in a business because there was an exiting partner and they needed to replace that person or the person's capital or something like that. You know, Divorce, death, obviously health, uh, particularly with the pandemic is an issue. Just relocation generally because they don't want to live there anymore. They want to live to be closer to a family or move to a lower cost of living place or something like that. Money is very often not because the business is losing money so much because I want a profitable business, but the money's not as much as they could earn doing something else, or they see an opportunity that is currently available to them that would yield a higher income than what they're doing in the business that they've got right now. And a lot of people just want to stop, right? You, you get a lot of people that are just retiring. Uh, you get 600,000 businesses a year in the States alone that just close their doors because of whatever. People just, they, they can't sell them. They can't do anything else. They're just walking away. So there's a whole lot of reasons that people would sell a profitable business. When you're looking at the business, are you making any uh, decisions around ways that you can run it? better? Like are you going in with an expectation of there's probably this margin here because I can see that they have too many staff or inefficient systems or that kind of thing? Yeah. We have a playbook of about 93 different things that we look at when we go in. And so we just kind of tick those off. We have you know low-hanging fruit, which would be increasing prices because most businesses haven't done that in a long time up to the more complicated uh, operational or you know inventory management systems or things like that. Yeah. And generally it's people, it sounds like, who are running the show themselves and then you're uh, taking over from them with a team or do you often buy from people who it's being run and they're not on the org chart, but you're still taking over? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I would say it runs about 50-50 for me that there are 50% owner-operated businesses where if the owner was to go away for six months to a year, the business wouldn't still be there. And professionally managed businesses where if the owner went away for six months to 12, it would probably be in better shape. Yeah, okay. I believe it was, I think I heard it from, from uh, Tony Robbins somewhere, um, that we're facing down a period where there's going to be a lot of businesses that come up for options because the owners, the the baby boomer generation is hitting that period where they're now going to be stepping out and there's not necessarily many to come in and and, and step in and take it because uh, birth rates lower and, and whatever. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Do you think that's valid? And where do you see opportunity there? Yeah, the data tells us it's valid. You have 330,000 baby boomers per day that are reaching retirement age for the next several years. About 12 and a half million of those will be transitioning their businesses over the next 10 years. Um, so you have, and it's a, I think it's a total value of about $10 trillion. So it's a, it, there is a huge point in time that we've got here for a decade or so where there are going to be far more people who are self-employed, entrepreneurial business owners that are just aging out that 80% of whom can't even list their business and sell, many of whom will simply close the doors of the business. Many of them have no legacy or transition plan because their kids aren't interested in it and don't want to work in it. So that's a giant opportunity. Absolutely 100%. How are you uh, looking at that for yourself and, and capitalizing on it? Do you have any, uh, any focuses, any things that you're looking at or strategies that you're going to start applying? Well, I mean, I, I have I have a whole training on it, right? So, so what's cool is what I built for myself. Now I make available for other people. But my whole thing is 
what are your acquisition criteria? I have acquisition criteria in each different vertical that I'm in of what I'm looking for. And so I'm very specific about what I'm looking for. And I'm looking generally, uh, the first place is, what can I add to what I've got? Because I've already got a portfolio of businesses. So how do I make those businesses stronger? And I just ask myself, what is what is it that I'm solving for with my current platform? So I might say, well, I want more market share. That means I should buy competitors. I want more leads. I should buy media. I need more team or infrastructure. I should aqua hire and buy somebody that's already got one of those. I need a higher AOV then I need more products or services. So I should acquire companies that have those. I more need more lifetime customer value. So then I should figure out how do I acquire recurring revenue? I need more profit. How do I vertically integrate up and down the supply and distribution chain? I need more innovation. Then I buy IP, right? So just it's what's the thing I'm going to solve for? And then I've got an answer through acquisitions. And you generally stack your companies like that? Like you're not just jumping into multiple? Absolutely. You're stacking them. Yeah. yeah. It makes yeah, no, sense. Yeah. I mean, I go into new verticals regularly when opportunities come about. Uh, and there are industries that I think are very appealing that, you know, that I play in, but, um, but I'm also always looking to grow the businesses I've got so that I can sell them for more money. It makes a lot of sense if, if, you know, if you're, uh, I've seen that with, with people in, in the online uh, space and they will, uh, you know, they, they need more sales Rip. So they might pick up a company or create one that solves a problem that then feeds to themselves. So much easier to do that than to start it from scratch. Mm, yeah. I'd love to learn uh, more about your program. And I think people listening to this, if they're anything like me, will have built to that point. Tell us about your program, how it works, uh, how you teach this stuff. Sure. Yeah. I, I do. Um, I do every six or so weeks, um, a challenge. It's a five-day challenge where I basically kind of go through and say, let's identify five companies that you can acquire with no money out of pocket. And then I kind of go through and I share eight or 10 of the different strategies. And if you're paying close attention, you probably find 13 or 14 of them um, as to how to actually do that. And then it's really cool because I get DMs all the time from people who have just bought their business or people who bought a whole bunch of businesses and never let me know. And then somehow they get reconnected to me and they're like, you know, I did what you did. You taught. And I did, you know, I just bought 16 businesses. Like, Oh my gosh, that's, it's so cool. And it happens all the time. And so that's really, really fun. And so teaching that starting out with how do you figure out like, what is the opportunity and what is your acquisition criteria? Then how do you identify businesses to acquire? And then where do you find them? And then how do you find the owner's information? And then how do you reach out to the owners? What do you say to them? And then what do you do once you've had that conversation to gather the data that you need to then how do you analyze the data to then how do I structure what I call the deal stack to get up between the gap between zero and whatever it's going to cost you? And then how do you do basic due diligence and go forward? Let me ask you, everything sounds like a good idea. And there's a trap of doing too many things and losing focus, right? Splitting focus. If I've got focus on one thing and now I'm doing 10, I'm not multitasking because it's not real. I'm splitting. Yeah. I've now got 10% focus or hundred percent for 10 minutes in it, right? So yep. if somebody is running a business, they're reasonably successful with it and their intention is to, to grow and collectively be more successful, not necessarily in one particular space. What would be your advice for them with thinking about all these things? Because you've got property that you can get into, you, you've got other investments, you've got business building, and then you've got your own business, not just buying them. What's your advice? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's good to focus on one thing until you get that thing done. The only way that you can really multitask effectively, you know, because as, as you said, otherwise you're doing like a computer, you're quickly cycling 
among tasks. And so, you know, particularly because unlike a computer, we have up and down time between that. We have switch time. So if you're switching between those things, you're losing a whole lot of time. It's terribly inefficient. But what you can do to stop that is you can have operators. And so I I differentiate between working in the business where you're doing all of the tasks that the business needs to be done to working on the business like Gerber teaches. And that's basically you should delegate and have systems and things like that. But it's still focused on the business. And then to me, there's working above the business, which is the highest level where the business itself is the product or service. And you don't really focus your day-to-day on, am I selling more widgets or services? You have people who are operators that do that. Your job is to be sure that you have operators, be sure that the business is financed correctly, and be sure that it is performing at the level that you want it to perform at on the KPIs you've identified that are important. And then how do you get more investors and capital? How do you find more businesses to acquire? That's really working above the business. That led into my next question beautifully, which is management and how do you stay out? And and you said it right. Where most, especially the people listening to this right now, they are in their business as the as the 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 magician doing everything, and they have barely any people or barely any systems. And so you said we then start to work on the business with systems, processes, and and people, but you're still heavily involved, and then you're working above the business. Does it get to a stage where you have managers? for lack of a better term, managing managers. So where you have a a smaller executive team who then go and execute on subgroups of your companies, et cetera, so that you are even further removed? Or do you like to generally stay reasonably direct uh, to the the heads of the company? It it depends on on the stage of that particular vertical. So to me, there's like, I, I say there's five exits of an entrepreneur. The first one is you're working in the business and then you move up to management. And now you're working on the business. You exited the line. Now you're in management. Then you exit management and you move up to basically being the CEO where your focus has changed. Then you exit the CEO to go to the board and then you're on the board and then you exit the board to become just an investor in the company. And then ultimately you sell the company and you've exited the company. So where I generally sit is on the board or higher, right? So I might be on the board and therefore I'm kind of focused a little bit on who's the CEO so that I've got the person in there that can basically do the things that need to be done. Um, but I prefer not to be on the board either. I prefer to be the investor or the exited the, or, or the investor that recently sold. <laughs> Those are my favorite places to be. Would your program be helpful for people who are in their business and need to learn how to turn it into a, for lack of a better term, driverless business, right? Where they don't have to drive it? Or is it solely for people who are now at a place in their life ready to invest into things? Yeah, it's a really good question. I I think it helps because it exposes you to the possibility of that and then has a plan for getting you there. So if you're, because if you are currently the driver, then one of the easiest ways to stop is to acquire something that already has the ops team that you need, as opposed to going through the painful process of identifying and interviewing and vetting and hopefully hiring the right person. And then that doesn't work out and you have to start over again. It's so much easier if you can start out just saying, here are the things. I I mean, to me, everything is begin with the end in mind. So what do I need to solve for? I am wearing all the hats in my company now. How do I solve for that? I need a team. Okay. How do I get a team? 
many different ways to do it. Which is the one that will be both effective and that it gets done what my goal is, which is to have a team and most efficient, meaning it's going to get that to happen in the fastest possible way. I don't know a faster possible way than through acquisition. So to me, acquisition solves all of the problems in the most effective and efficient way. How do you remain emotionless in this, in, in regards to being overly attached to the thing? I see it a lot with, with people that I talk about purchasing property, for example, and looking at it as an investment versus you know a home. If it's a home, you're going to overpay because you're buying on emotion versus buying on the numbers making the most sense. Um, how do you avoid being emotional in a, in a purchase decision around something that you, you know, get trapped into. I like this. I like the idea of this. What do you do yourself to sort of avoid that? Or do you suggest that you don't avoid that? Um, I don't know that you can 100% avoid it, but I think that part of it is that if you can stay focused on what is your end game, and if your end game is to maximize your investment capital or your portfolio, or even your personal joy and, the thing, then you say, well, what's the thing that gets me there? Again, solving for the end, right? What's the thing that gets me there fastest? Well, if I go forward with this deal at the price that, you know, or on the terms that they're asking for that don't meet my predetermined acquisition criteria, then I know that it will take me longer to get to my end goal. But I also know that there are relatively endless numbers of businesses that are out there. If I'm going to go to the next. So what I believe helps with that is to say, I actually believe that if I don't stick with my acquisition criteria, I will be extending the time until I can achieve the goals that are the most important to me. So I think it all starts with saying, what is the end game? What is my end goal? And then if you say, that's what I'm solving for, it's pretty easy to, to even if you're like, yeah, man, I'd really like that business, but you know what? I'd like even more than that business to hit that goal that I said was really important to me. And so then you're not losing perspective. I think that that emotionality is when you temporarily suspend the focus that you have on the ultimate thing you want in exchange for something that you want right now. And if you can not suspend that. And you can go back and say, I'm truly going to compare what is the joy that this will bring me right now versus the joy that this will bring me for the rest of my life. Then it's pretty easy to say, not now. And you don't even have to say no. See, I don't even advocate that you say no, because no cuts off an option. Not now is just like, this isn't right for me right now. It's a cake that's baking and maybe it will bake and never be good for me, or maybe it will bake. And that deal will come back around a month from now, 90 days, you know, a year, five years, I've had deals come back 10 years later, right? So I don't ever burn the bridge. It's just, you know, ah, I would love to do it, but right now it just doesn't fit what I need. If this and this change, I definitely would love to talk with you, right? That makes it very easy to move on because you aren't actually cutting off something that you thought you wanted. 100%. A lack of clarity on what you want and having no emotional drive behind that is one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you're going to be successful or, or not. And in, in, in my experience, uh, Agree. At, at least because if, and you, you keep saying it at, at exactly the same way that I say it to my clients every day, which is what do you want? And then solve for that because yeah. a, a, a mantra of mine is um, solve problems. Don't chase ideas. And yeah. a lot of us get caught up in the emotion of, of hype of this idea instead of going, well, 
what problem do I need to solve to get to where I want to be? And, and you say, well, what do you want? And the person says, I don't know, but this seems like a cool idea. I'd love to have an Amazon business. And it's like, yeah, you're caught up in, in the, the marketing and sales hype uh, of that, that company trying to pitch that thing versus, you know, what do I want uh, in my life? And I think we get caught in that um, in a lot of things, you know, you see this, uh, people get uh, excited about children, but they necessarily didn't understand what that would mean to be a parent. I've got two young kids and I can tell you, it's not just little babies that are cute and cuddly. That's when it's somebody else's kid, not your own. Um, right. Because you can, you can give them back. Like it was yeah. sidetrack. It's funny when you, you meet somebody who, who else has got kids. I don't know about you, um, but like, I'll find that I will swap children and experience joy in playing with that kid because it's somebody else's kid that I know that I'm going to pass back. It sounds yeah. weird, but you know what I mean? As a new baby and, and my wife will say, oh, we should have a third. And I'm like, no, no, that's just because we're in love right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's wait a few minutes when the other kids are screaming and then decide if we want another one. But I think that's, yes. that's reality. We, you know, I want a motorcycle. I want yeah. a business. I want a lot of things that I haven't thought about clearly. What do I actually want through that? Not just the thing, but what is that thing getting me? And without that clarity, you can't solve for it because what things need to be achieved. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? What are some interesting things that you can share with us that, that are your focuses at the moment? I mean, my, my whole thing is really, I've got, um, I've got a whole bunch of deals that are in process. We have five exits that we're working on right now that I can't talk about because uh, they're all in various stages of non-disclosure. And um, we have quite a few acquisitions that we're working on. I mean, I, I do this stuff every day um, and it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. So, you know, I get to go to play every day instead of going to work, which is pretty fun. And um, that, that's, so that's what I'm doing. You know, it's like, I'm in the middle of a whole bunch of deals and just as happy as can be because I get to negotiate. I get to, you know, to see the things that I invested my time and effort in three to five or seven years ago, now moving towards the end of that cycle. And I have several things that are adding to the things that I invested in two or three or four years ago. And I have several things that I'm adding now that will, you know, several years from now be something else that, uh, that gets to go through that. So that's truly it, you know, in, in terms of business, in terms of, and, you know, they're in all different kinds of, you know, we're building a media network and we have, uh, you know, quite a few very cool um, franchise opportunities that we're working on. And we have restaurants and we have e-learning companies and a lot of SaaSes and, you know, all of that stuff is just really fun. So I get to learn all the time, which is I'm a infinite learner, you know, give me the chance to learn as much as I possibly can. I am ravenous for it all the time. And, I'm learning because what I get excited about is learning, not just for learning's sake, but learning with the ability to apply it. So when I'm constantly consuming new information that I see can be applied to all of the different things I've got, that just sets me on fire. I have to ask, are there any really cool businesses that you're a part of that you can't talk about because they're, they're name brands or they're under some kind of NDA that, that you're just the secret owner of? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, it's 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 exciting and disappointing at the same time. And then you have things that are in the middle of different uh, levels of funding or exit or you know any of those things, and all of them make you sign things that say you can't talk about them, which is uh, you know <laughs> it's pretty funny. When when do you think about exiting, and why why would you exit at something that's profitable and working well? Like what what's your thought process there? It's a great question because, uh, and it's a very common question. And and I get like when I advise people on exiting, I had a uh, I do half day consults to generate deal flow, 
And I had somebody fly in from a different place today and meet with me for about three hours. And we talked about their, their business. And, um, and I told them, as I tell everybody, I was like, so um, do you have a number? Why is that the number? If you don't, you should. Um, and it can change, but you should have a number, right? And will this business hit that number? And we went through that and I said, yeah, you can, you can hit that number. And then it was like, okay. So I said, so if you hit that number and you can sell the business, what are you going to do next? And they have a whole lot of other things that they want to do business-wise and a whole bunch of things they want to do personally-wise. And I said, so you are the ideal seller of a business because you're going to cash out and then you know what you're going to do next. But if the business is your life, and it really does become, without us realizing it, a very important part of our social life and our worth. Um, if that gets removed and you don't have another place to go, you're probably going to be unhappy. You're going to have a fixed amount of assets to live off of for the rest of your life. And hopefully your investments go well, but maybe they won't. And I've seen $100 million go away, you know, a time or two. So even if you think, you know, oh, I never could spend that, well, you probably can. So, that being the case, to me, I think the answer is I am not short on ideas and I'm not short on opportunities or things that I want to do. So to me, I could sell every business that I've got tomorrow and I'd still have a hundred things that I wanted to do and still wouldn't be able to do them all. So I think that you exit the business if you realize that you're okay with not having that anymore socially and worthwise, and you've got something else that you're going to go into. Because if you can't replace it with something else, then you're just going to be sad and maybe even get into bad habits and things like that. So I suppose from an investment perspective, it's it's similar to closing a position on one thing so that you can use that for something else. If that's yeah. the thing that's exciting you or is that the next thing you want to do, it's not that it's not a good investment to hold. It's that there's a new opportunity that you want to use that for. There, there is, but here's the financial reason to do that. So since we know that businesses sell for a multiple of their profits, and let's say that the average is selling for 10 now, just for an easy number to look with. So the day that I sell my thing that I'm selling right now, I get 10 years of profits today. So if I sell a business every year for 10 years, I received 100 years of profits in addition to the 10 years that I would have gotten anyway. I have 110 years worth of profits in 10 years as opposed to 10 years of profits. That's a pretty big difference. And if my business is profiting at a million dollars a year, and I can sell that at a multiple of 10, and I did that every year for 10 years, I'd have $100 million. And maybe I do that every five years. And now I've got $10 million times five plus 10 years of profits. I still have $60 million, right? That's kind of crazy because, you know, let's say that I'm living off of, I'm paying taxes at 50%, and then I get, you know, I live off of half of it. I could end up literally just with nothing as many people do, even though I made a million dollars a year for 10 years or 20 years, or I could end up with that same lifestyle plus $50 million to invest. That's well, a suppose huge A multiple of that is if, if, if you're any good at making that business better, then you can pick up like pick up a business and, and sort of with the flipping uh, philosophy of, of property, make the business better hold yep. it for a little time and then sell it for a larger multiple because you did a better job at running it. And if you've turned it into something that someone else can come in and be a 
uh, an owner of instead of an operator in, it has more value as well, doesn't it? For example, for me as a practice owner, it's difficult to sell a practice when there aren't many practitioners who can take over and do the thing. And practices tend to, uh, you, well, at least where I am, you can't sell them for much more than 50% uh, of profit or revenue or whatever because someone else has to come in and continue operating it. And that's yep. a weakness of single practitioner private practices, yep. for example. But if you make it, the business into an entity that runs without you and runs smoothly and does it well, then someone else who isn't a professional in that industry can come and own it. You would own businesses that you're a plumbing business and you're not a plumber, right? And I think a lot of people think of business being, I'm now going to have to operate this thing versus it being a, you know, an asset. Yeah. The uh, owner-operated businesses across all industries sell for a multiple on average of 2.5, whereas professionally managed businesses sell on average across all industries for 3.8. So like right off the bat, if you were going to do nothing but go in and acquire owner-operated businesses and professionalize them, bring in management, then you've opened up. They sell for that much more because it reduces the risk because of the dependency on the operator owner. And it increases the universe of potential buyers because the only people that can buy the owner-operated businesses are people that are looking, that have that skill that want to go and work in that job. Whereas if you have a professionally managed business, it's anybody that wants to invest in a business for a return, they're just buying cash flow. So like just that alone is a giant opportunity. Massive. Let me ask you uh, one last question. Something I ask all of uh, our guests. Uh, what's the most important thing that you ever learned? Well, it depends across so many different things. So I, I wouldn't be able to pick one most important thing, but I would say among the most important things is that you're always thinking too small because no matter who you are, or where you are, um, there's always someone in some area that is clearer and is, has a, a better idea of what the possibilities are, um, that all of the constraints that come really in our lives come in here. Uh, and I think history and society proves that out. And the, the second thing would be really the, um, that people will make deals that are bad for themselves and you can't let them do that because they will feel bad. They will find ways to sabotage if their continued involvement is required and you will feel bad. So like, I won't do deals with people who aren't excited about the deal, even if it's not maybe the price that they wanted, I want them to be excited about the price that we've agreed on because, or the terms, because it will get them to the thing that they want. And if they're not happy with that, I will not do the deal, even if it's one of the best deals I could have ever done, because I don't want the karma. I don't want the bad reputation. I don't want them unhappy out there. I just feel like, you know, that's a big danger. And then the last one of the three that I'll, I'll settle on instead of one is, uh, that people are everything in business. If you're going to bet on anything, don't bet on a successful business, bet on a successful person because successful businesses are very often ruined by people who have, you know, who can find ways to just destroy almost anything. And um, if you want a lasting business, then invest in the people. I love those. Those are really, really good. Thank you so much uh, for yeah, sharing that. Thanks for having me. Where can our audience connect with you online and, and check out your program and, and all that sort of stuff? Sure. So I have a podcast uh, called Business Launch where I interview super smart people like you. I, I am forward slash Roland Frazier on all the social medias from TikTok and LinkedIn to YouTube and Instagram. And then um, I have uh, I have that five-day challenge is at getepicchallenge.com. And uh, you can go to rolandfraser.com and see lots of stuff too. 
Amazing. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you. I had a lot of fun and, and I, I learned a ton. So yeah, thanks great. for having me. Thank you for checking out this episode. If you liked it, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you're a healthcare professional who wants to get serious about business, check out practiceowner.com where we have a whole lot of resources on helping you to grow more impactful and more financially viable practices. So that's practiceowner.com. Go and check that out if you're a health professional serious about business and don't forget to subscribe.